Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Tractor Supply trusts 5G solutions from T-Mobile. Together, they're connecting over 2,200 stores with 5G business internet and powering AI so team members can match shoppers with the products they need faster. This is enriching customer experience. This is Tractor Supply with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of long-form conversations with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for being here. Off the top, I apologize for both uh, now in the intro and during the podcast itself. I am still recovering from the madness that is TIFF, and I uh, I sound congested. I sound sick, and it's because I am. And uh, things are getting better, and I hope by next week this is all a distant, distant memory. For episode 25 of the show, we have the trailblazing documentarian Steve James joining us. If that name sounds vaguely familiar, it's probably because you've seen a film or two of his. In 1994, he released the groundbreaking documentary Hoop Dreams, an intimate, nearly three-hour portrait of two inner-city Chicago kids who want nothing more in life to play professional basketball. The revolutionary doc took nearly seven years to make, as James and company comb through hundreds of hours of footage. The result is something of a masterpiece that charts the evolution from hopeful teens to inevitable adults. James, despite being from Hampton, Virginia, has a tendency to stick to Chicago stories, as does, apparently, this podcast. He later went on to direct The Interrupters, a powerful film about violence in Chicago through the eyes of those trying to keep the peace. It's a painful snapshot of a subsection in the city that's in utter disarray. What distinguishes James from contemporaries is his general absence from his documentaries. You can count on one hand the amount of time Steve James appears on screen during one of his films. As a filmmaker, he is rigorous, meticulous, 
empathetic, and endlessly curious about other people. This is especially true in his latest film, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, about a small bank that underwent criminal indictment during the 2008 mortgage crisis. This case is about exonerating our entire community, no matter what we do, be it the little guy selling vegetables or a bank that's doing business. I told Mr. Song, I'm glad they pick on you because you're a fighter. Cyrus Vance just felt this is easier to attack, especially as a family bank. But he doesn't realize Tom is not easy to be pushed around. And my girls, they're tough, smart, capable women, so courageous. I first met Steve at Ebert Fest when he premiered Life Itself there a year after Roger Ebert's passing. To date, Watching that film in the jam-packed Virginia theater with Ebert friends, family, and fans alike is one of the best cinematic experiences I've ever had. This, and Roger, is obviously a topic of conversation Steve and I get into. We also discuss how we got from Virginia to Chicago, the process of spending many, many years with the subject for a documentary, and why he believes people are often so willing to open up to him. But first... We start with the reason he's finally back in Toronto for the film festival. So, finally, here is Steve James. I feel like I know generally the origin of most of your films. Uh-huh. Having heard you talk at Ebert Fest or, <laughs> right. or through some or another, but... Where does this start for you? Where does this story begin? Well, uh, <clears throat> did it start when you watched It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> Many years ago. Uh, no, it, it actually began with Mark Mitten, the, the, who was an exec producer on Ebert and, um, the Ebert film and, and, um, uh, and he's friends with the Sung family, uh, and Vera Sung in particular told him, like, what was going on with them. And he was like, this is crazy. And it struck him as it then later struck me. It's like, no one's writing about this. No one's mm. doing anything about this, this story. Like they're the only bank being indicted. The only thing that it appeared to print when we started the project outside of the Chinese American press was a chapter in Matt Taibbi's book, the divide. The very first chapter is about the indictment of Abacus. It was written before the trial, but just, just, he was just outraged at the very indictment of mm. the institution. And um, that's a book about the unequal application of justice in America. So he was using that as exhibit A, right? Mm. Um, and so I, Mark had me read that. And I read it and I was like, well, I, you know, I, I felt like I was really, really busy. And I wasn't sure I could take this on. But I, I went and spent three days filming with the family and in New York. And after that, I was like, okay, let's, let's do this. <laughs> your stories seem to fall on your lap the more you've been doing this. Uh, they come in different ways. I mean, um, you know, sometimes they, I mean, I certainly get pitched more stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the great majority of them, I don't, uh, you know, they don't resonate with me. So I don't, I'm not interested in pursuing, but it just so happens that the last two films, the Ebert film was one that was, um, pitched to me by, you know, uh, Garrett Bash and Steve Zalian 
after having read Roger's book and just saying they thought it would make a great, um, you know, basis for a documentary. And then I, I hadn't read the book. I went mm. and read the book and I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then this one happened that way. But like I'm doing a thing now that's uh, going to be a mini series about the high school in Oak Park um, where my kids went um, looking at race and identity. What school? Oak Park River Forest High. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, are you from the area? Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, I'm from Southside. Yeah. So it's a look at race and identity and achievement in the school where we've lived for many years. My kids graduated and it's a project I've wanted to do for 10 years, but mm. never thought I could possibly do. And it just worked out. I was able to do it. So it, they come in different ways. It's interesting. You mentioned that you're diving into race and identity because it's something in your films a lot. Yeah. And I was looking at your background just on like the quick Wikipedia search. <laughs> there's not much there. No, well, there's not, there's not, but it says Steve James born in Hampton, Virginia. And I was like, okay, let's start there. Like what? Oh, really? You want to start there? I want to go there because <clears throat> I want to know how someone from Hampton, Virginia, which by all accounts, by the pictures that I looked at today, it's very nice. It seems, it's very, it's very well, they, they put some good pictures up, oh, okay. I think. <laughs> it seems quiet. It seems like, uh, yeah. you know, like a small town or something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a smallish city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's, as they like to claim, the oldest continuous English-speaking settlement in North America. Oh, that's a claim to fame right there. That is a claim to fame. It's also, as I did a film, I don't know if you ever saw this film, but I did a film about Alan Iverson for ESPN. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. Don't trust me, that's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. is it? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, so it. when I did that film, I also discovered that it's where slaves first came to America. Was and off, And they never, of course, told us that when I was in school there. In Hampton. In Hampton. It wasn't in the history books. Hey, yeah. by the way, the place here. Yeah, uh, right, right off our shores here is where the slaves, uh, you know, in the, in the film, I, I, when I checked into a hotel room when I was doing that film and I put this in the film, I looked at the little, you know, uh, entertainment, touristy magazine they had in the hotel for the mm-hmm. area and and you know this is in the film and they say hampton they talk about being the oldest continuous blah 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 and then they say and where african-americans first disembarked in america as if they were coming on holiday yeah that, <laughs> what, a, what a turn of phrase that is <laughs> so so anyway yeah so hampton's where i grew up and hampton is also where i i think had such a kind of primary experiences around race that that kind of made me fascinated, compelled by that topic. Were you cognizant or compelled by it as a kid there? I would say it, it really, it began to dawn on me. Well, I, because I played basketball and, and what um, position forward. Right. Um, and, and because most of my teammates were black, um, I had to kind of, you know, for most white people, unless you play in that town, football or basketball, you, you know, that those are sports that brought you into close proximity with black people. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in the 70s. 70s, that's mm-hmm. right. And so I think it started there by playing basketball and and kind of I lived in a redneck part of town. But I played basketball, okay. you know, and so that disjunct, disjuncture <laughs> between where I lived and what my passion was right. started to make me aware. And then, 
it just kind of went from there. And, you know, I, I th- there was probably rarely a day, I, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but the use of the N-word by people around me growing up, not, you know, was so frequent that it was, it was just, you know, the way it was. Did playing on the basketball team cause problems with, for you and your neighborhood? No. If anything, they wish there were more white boys on the team, right? Mm. Right. <laughs> so they were probably, they were happy that, that, that I was, you know, on the team and a starter to right. boot. So right. I was doing something for the race, if anything. I mean, no one ever said to me, you're upholding the race yeah, by being, yeah. but, but there was definitely pride. Put it this way. Um, I got my picture in the paper, uh, in the sports pages when they would have the stories, uh, uh, of the games there was a lot of high school coverage because that was very important in the community mm. my picture was in the paper a lot um and it wasn't because i had like had some phenomenal game it was right. just like for some reason they happened to get a picture of oh here's the game from hampton's game last night you know picture from hampton's game and you're steve james forward and there'd be more photos of you than your oh black for teammates. sure for sure for sure and that's it wasn't a coincidence. Oh, no, no. No, in fact, my my mom used to joke about it. It's like, yep, they have to make sure they get the white boy in the... Oh, so so you guys were aware of what was going on here? Yeah. she Yeah, she was, yeah, she was aware. They, they, yeah, we were aware. And it, it was clear. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like I'm the only guy, white guy starting. Why am I in the picture mm. so much, you know? Did you feel <laughs> uneasy about any of it? Uh, I I remember noticing it. But not feeling uneasy because it's fun to get your picture in the paper. I mean, where I really noticed it most pronounced, and this is in the the the, the Iverson doc, was when we'd have pep rallies, and um, and in that film, I talk about how when they would um, announce, so we'd have pep rallies for the football team and also then for basketball games, and there were so few white guys on the basketball team, uh, and that when when the students would come into the gym they would self-select where they sat. And it was just at Hampton, it was just all the whites on this side, all the blacks on this side. And the school was almost 50, 50, but you could see really see the racial breakdown because it would be all whites, all blacks and one thin stretch of white people on this side of the stands, right. All sitting together. And, um, and then when they would introduce a black player, the black side would cheer. And when they'd introduce a white player, the white side would cheer and it wasn't like acrimonious. It was almost like a competition of like who could cheer the loudest. And, and I just remember, and my teammates, we, we remember just thinking it was kind of funny and stupid, but I, I didn't think deeply about it. Mm-hmm. Like this is a really profound statement about how fucked up this right. place is. It was more like this is weird. So it was a non-segregated, segregated school. Yeah, which is very much... The school I'm I'm profiling now, because of the tracking system, has tremendous amounts of segregation within oh. its walls. Right. It's just one of the things that fascinates me about doing that story. What moved you from playing basketball in high school to you went to college? Yes, I went to college. Uh, I, I went to James Madison in Virginia with the hopes of playing basketball there because it was a low level division one, but there was a thinking that I might be able to make the team. I played one year, the fresh soft team and then gave it up because that wasn't going to, it was not going to happen. So it wasn't until I got to college that I actually decided I 
wanted to apply myself in any way mm-hmm. other than on the basketball court. That's <laughs> funny. I played basketball a little bit in high school and uh-huh. then I stopped. But for that same reason, I thought, well, this is not going to, yeah. this is not going to go anywhere. Yeah. There yeah. are certain, uh, biological factors that <laughs> I was, you know, this is not going to happen. And yeah. Yeah. But that bummed me. I mean, it made me sad at the time. Yeah. Cause you thought you spent your whole time thinking about playing basketball. Oh yeah. I was the same way. It, yeah. It dawned on me in high school that I wasn't going to be anything. You weren't going to be in the NBA. I definitely wasn't going to be in the NBA. And I wasn't going to get that scholarship to, you know, UCLA that would have been nice to get. Mm. Uh, full ride you know that wasn't going to oh, happen yeah, that would have been nice um you know i wasn't anywhere close to get you know dawn to me like oh i guess i'm not that good really <laughs> were you were you getting into film cinema documentary Mm-mm. subjects and in, in college or what no i i felt i liked going to movies um and as, when I got to college and had more opportunity because of the you know the film showings of films you know at the at the the uh you know in this auditorium they showed films it was really terrible sound and not great projection but they did bring in some interesting films i liked films i like going to films and not just stupid films i i mean i wasn't i wasn't going to all the foreign films for mm-hmm. sure but more adventuresome american films i i liked stanley kubrick mm-hmm. um and yeah, I remember having a discussion with my dorm mates after we watched 2001 at the, and they were like, what the fuck was that about? You know? And I was <laughs> like, oh no, that was great. And they were like, what the fuck are you on? You know, it's like, well, did you guys take anything prior to seeing it? <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I that's, did. That's, that's, a, that's, that's the whole point of, pass, of it. That's, right. yeah, that's, right. uh, that's the whole point of it. No, I didn't. I might have been a little drunk, but um, no, I don't even think I was drunk for that one. I just but see. I, but the thing about seeing a movie drunk is that that's not that's not illuminating or enlightening. Exactly, it's, it's just confusing. <laughs> it's just confusing. And then you end up falling asleep minute thirty five. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. wake up with like twenty minutes left. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I did not. I was sober when I saw it, but it still it just spoke to me. I I remember, you know, but but I so I started. I get I started to get more adventurous in watching films, which then prompted me to take a class that everyone was telling me about was a, a, a great, um, uh, like a fun class in the English department, a film appreciation class. Mm. And everyone said, you know, it's not that hard of a class, but, but the, the, the real reason to take it wasn't because it was a cake class, but because the, it was, the professor was really great and fun. Right. And, and so I took that class and instead of them doing the survey, that he usually did, you know, from silence to, you know, that kind of class. Right. He wanted to mix it up. And that particular um, semester when I took it, he, which was my spring semester, junior year, he, uh, he did a film, a, a class on auteurs. So we looked at uh, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, Jean Renoir, uh, Hitchcock, and Arthur Penn. Huh. And we looked at like four films from each of them. And I just, I, at that point I was then suddenly hook, line and sinker. I was like, I love this. Like, is, how could I like, is, it wasn't documentaries. Mm. It was like, how, is there any way I could like do this? I, I had no idea how, cause they didn't have any film courses there. Oh. Uh, so and, I you, didn't know, you, and I didn't know pivot? anybody. <laughs> yeah. You didn't know you're from Hampton, Virginia. There's not like. No- I think I could safely say I was the first guy from Hampton to pursue the film career. No, I don't know if that's true. But 
Um, it's probably true. It's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a good, there's a good chance. There's that's a true. decent chance. So where, so where are you making, so what happened are you making was, the pivot? Okay. Life? So what I, what, that was the end of my junior year and I was on a track. I was a mass communication major, which was a easy major, which was good for me. That's the major they tell you in college. If you don't know what you're doing, take that, take mass communication. And that was it. And, but I was, I wasn't a complete idiot at that point. I was like, uh, I was really getting into wanting to be smart, um, but I didn't change my major. Wait, so you you were a complete idiot until then. I st- I was completed it till my sophomore, I think my fall sophomore year in college. Mm. I was a complete idiot. Yeah. I still feel like I am. Yeah, so, well, yeah. I, I'm not saying I'm brilliant or anything, but I was a <laughs> I was definitely a complete idiot. I I went to the rec center and played ball. I went to parties. I got, I had like a 2.2 grade point average. Solid 2.2. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Stable 2.2. C's average. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Exactly. That. Yeah. (laughs) So, but yeah, I took a, uh, uh, English class I had to take. And yeah, it was, it was basically one novel that was the light bulb went off. Oh, what was that? (laughs) I really got you with this one, didn't I? Yeah. It was a very strange novel by Robert Coover called Universal Baseball Association. I've never even heard of this. It's a it's like an experimental novel. Okay, give me the log line here. What, what's the log line is is it's about a guy who's like a, a shut in, essentially who plays rotisserie baseball, which was a forerunner of um, fantasy. Yeah, no, no, everything I, right. He played rotisserie baseball and he lives, so, he lives so completely within this world of rotisserie baseball that he created, that he created his own, um, you know, this, he was his own world of people and characters. He, he lived a complete fantasy life, uh-huh. completely obsessed with rotisserie baseball and this, this league he'd created. But at some point, I, uh, when I was younger, I used to create games, sports games. And I created a baseball game and I created a basketball game and a track and field game. And I was, I was actually took art classes in high school. I, I had a ability to draw and all that. So I wasn't a, com- I guess I wasn't a complete idiot, but even then, but anyway, it, that novel spoke to me because it plugged into so many things that just resonated with me. And it was almost like Kubrick's film, right? It was just like strange thing to have uh someone who wasn't like that sophisticated about i mean i didn't i i didn't read novels i read cliff notes you know i i you know yeah. it's like and i barely read cliff notes that was pretty long yeah, and yeah. and obviously boring but anyway so it just spoke to me and from that moment forward it's almost like something the, the light bulb the proverbial light bulb went off and i was like i, I don't want to be an idiot anymore I remember very consciously thinking that. I, I don't love want to that be an idiot. <laughs> you know what? This idiot thing, I'm, I, I think I'm done with it. I think it's time for a new chapter. I don't want to be an idiot anymore. What year did you graduate college? 77. 77. So, yeah. When so, my senior work? year, what I, what my senior year, what I did was is that I took some independent studies. They had a, they actually had a Super 8 camera in the, in the TV department. Mm. So, I borrowed it and I started making my own little Super 8 epics. Okay. See, I had framed For, a whole narrative in my head that when did Harlan County come out? Okay, that came out in 76, but I didn't see it until I got to grad school. Was that That was instrumental, instrumental but it wasn't until I got to grad school. Okay. So, what happened was I fell in love with film, 
they didn't have film. I was like, how do I like learn anything about this? I was like kind of serious about like, I, I want to try and figure this out. So were your parents okay with that? No, they thought it was really kind of, my, my parents thought I was making a big mistake until hoop dreams came out basically. Mm-hmm. Then it was like, Oh, what do they want you to do? Something where I could make a living. Ah, they were, they didn't have high expectations. Is <laughs> anything to pay for the mortgage? Yeah. They worried about like, how are you, you know, they, yeah, they, they, I mean, do you ever tell them about the business of documentary film then? Oh yeah. No, I, I didn't really know what the business of documentary right. <laughs> so I, you know, it's like, so yeah. So I ended up going to grad school in Southern Illinois because my girlfriend at the time who became my wife and still is my wife, low these many years, um, she was going there for grad school in clinical psych. And I looked through her catalog and I saw they had a whole film department. Oh. And I didn't really want to break up. <laughs> and I saw they had film classes, so it was kind of a two-for-one special. And I that's followed her out to Southern Illinois and ended up getting a master's in film. And that's where I saw – I didn't go there with the intention of getting a master's in film, but I, I ended up deciding I might as well get something out of this that I can use, like if I ever wanted to teach or something. But anyway, that's where I first saw Harlan County. I'm fascinated County. that the, in, early in your life, the driving force was a girl, not – like a job (laughs) yeah 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 well you know did you know that the relationship was going to work is that why well it felt special enough to not do that thing when you graduate college and go okay that was nice and have a nice life you know yeah those are great times yeah yeah yeah. no it definitely felt special enough that i wanted to uh not give up on it and i just remember her it was why i remember when i asked her it was like one of those things where it was on her mind too, like what's going to happen to us. Mm. And I said, well, how would you feel if I like came out there and like, you know, took some classes in the film department and she was like, that'd be okay. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be angry about that. I, I, I think that'd be all right. I'm not excited. I mean, that but that I, was I, like, I, it was, that was like the conversation. It wasn't like, Oh, you know, it was yeah. like, Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, I mean, she clearly wanted it to happen, but it was just it was kind of funny the way it went mm. down. So, so why don't we jump ahead to hoop dreams? Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got we got some good background there. Yeah, you you wanted background. You we got, got background. we got background that was not on the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you start making that movie in 1991. Nope. I started making that movie in 1987. Oh, it's four years off. Okay. It comes out in '94. Yep. Year I was born. Wow. <laughs> now I feel old. Yeah. Good. That was the complete no. Um, that was the goal there. You cut down my jokes earlier. Now yeah, I had it's payback. Spit. No. Okay. So 1987. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where does this start? Did you move to Chicago? I moved. Yeah. I, I was in grad school forever. Where were you living in Chicago? Well, I actually, I've always lived in Oak Park because my wife and i really fought this for a while but it was a losing battle when we left carbondale she was like first i was like well maybe i should go to new york she was like i cannot go to new york that's not gonna work i was like "Mm, la maybe because that's where the business is but i had had this idea while i was in grad school to do hoop dreams Mm. and so i didn't really want to go to la new york seemed like a good place to go to pursue that but Chicago also did. So we settled on Chicago, but then she sprung it on me like, okay, we're going to Chicago. Then like late in the game, 
we're making the move. She's like, but I don't want to live in the city itself. I can't, I don't, can deal with the intensity of that. And I was like, well, really? Oh, mm. Come on, you know. So You're making some big concessions here. Incredible concessions. It's the key to remaining married for as long as I've been married. Making, con- making concessions. Making concessions <laughs> routinely. Um, it's good she's not here to hear this. But it's, is it a mutual? Is she? Oh, yeah, she's say? not. Well, look, here's the thing. She made the bigger concessions. She moved to a place. She did not want to live in a big city at all. She, you know, we have three children. She She bore the brunt of that while I was off making films right. when things got better. Um, but anyway, we friends told us, well, if you're not going to live in the city, you've got to live in either Evanston or Oak Park. Those are really the two only options. That's true. And so we chose Oak Park because it was closer to where she got a job downtown in the loop. And, and we've been, we've literally been there ever since. Uh, so I've never lived in the city proper because of my life. It, and it's worked out. You know, it's worked out just fine uh, because it was a good place when we started to have kids. It was a good place to raise a family. And it's a great location for wherever I needed to go. And I've gotten the opportunity to make films in the city that I wanted to make. Several days later, Earl takes Arthur and his family on a recruiting visit to the high school where NBA star Isaiah Thomas played. The visit will give St. Joseph's coaches a chance to see Arthur perform. Your role today, Arthur, is to... Impress the coaches, try not to be too fancy, but take the open shot when you have it, play good defense and make good passes. The rest of it just play natural, you know. I'm hoping I'm going to go to St. Joe and play, but first I got I to I I I get my books straight and hopefully come out and, and um, impress the coaches. I mean, Hoop Dreams is arguably um, one of the more authentic portraits of that city and, and the people that habitate it. Yeah, thank so you. Where, where does that come? Yeah, you, you moved to Oak Park. <laughs> like, it, it, those, they, so well, how did that happen? Guy from Hampton by way of Carbondale. Yeah. Uh, well, I think basketball was the key. You were just attracted to basketball. Well, I think that was the, that was the common, <gasps> you know, obviously that was the common ground. Um, that allowed me entree into the lives of and and my partners on it, uh, Peter and Frederick, into the lives of um, these kids and their families. But I also, I mean, having having grown up around black people in a way, in in a, in a very significant way, um, I also felt like I had a comfort, even though I never. I, I remember being really struck by when I first got to Chicago and started to even travel through the city from Oak Park by way of surface streets downtown, for example. Mm. I remember being struck by the unbelievable intensity of those West Side neighborhoods. I remember I couldn't even listen to music at first. I just was so overwhelmed by the the, the intensity. I had to turn the volume down and just like experience it. Um and so it, I relished this I, this opportunity, you know what I mean? This was like the film just gave me not only a great opportunity to pursue the stories that fascinated me, but also to immerse myself in this this very different place. And and um, and so I loved it, you know. I, it was you, like you worked on this for it came out in ninety four, so six years, seven and a half, seven and a half years. Seven, seven and a half. How, how, what is your like mental headspace at this time? 
or six and seven and a half years. Well, it was once we got started, we didn't have any money to begin with, you know, and it took years to get real and really any money. How did you make ends meet? I worked in, um, I worked in the commercial spot world mostly, uh, starting as a PA. I was the world's oldest, most educated PA for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a a distinction I have. I lied about my age because I was, embarrassed uh and i and i didn't tell people i had an mfa in film because that would be further embarrassment they go that's great could you go stock that cooler over there for me please yeah real quick <laughs> oh you know about movies and no, that's okay Just, yeah we need a coffee yeah uh could you sweep up the set i you know that's so, you know in the in between sweeping up sets you're filming yeah yeah, we. I got a little Illinois Arts Council grant for two thousand dollars that we put towards buying tape stock, mm. and I found we found Peter Gilbert who had a camera and who was a basketball junkie, and he was willing to work on this for nothing. The subjects in the film did they ever feel? Did they ever wonder like, oh, is this movie coming out? Like, how long are you going to be filming me, Steve? Uh, well, as it went along, I think they. We didn't start out by saying we're going to follow you for four and a half years. We weren't going to do that. Uh, It evolved. I think they were curious about like, I mean, I think they were curious about a lot of things. They were curious about that. They were also curious about like, you know, for guys who are like filmmakers, they sure are pulling up in a pretty shitty car. You know, I, I had like a rusted out Mazda GLC hatchback Mm. and they were like, you know, so I, we weren't exactly high rollers. Uh, and, uh, did you become part of their family? Yeah. I mean, I think the key was is that it went along is, is that this bond developed. And, you know, I like to say that, that the best film experiences that I've had, and I, and I've been fortunate enough to have this more than once are when the subjects, the relationship becomes one where you feel like you're actually you're in this you're making this together you're not i'm not making a film on you so much but Mm -hmm. i'm i'm kind of doing this with you which is not that i give up editorial control and it sometimes leads to some very tough things where you have to put things in the film that you know are not going to they're not going to be happy with and that can be tough but but that the experience itself feels like we're in it together Mm. that's a lot of trust they're, they're they're putting in you it is it is it's for the most part it's worked out pretty well people people that i have followed have been happy to have been a part of it um you know there's been some bumpy things with some films Mm. for sure but for the most part i've been pretty lucky with that why do you think people are so willing to trust you i think it's my sense of humor (laughs) actually actually i do think it humor helps a lot um I think I really think a key I you know I when I do these master classes with younger or less experienced filmmakers they're always younger too. Um uh they're younger but they're more experienced I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I tell them I say you know in narrative film you can be a real asshole and be successful. You really can. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, sometimes it, it, it's, it helps. it's part of the mystique. It's like, you know, and, and out in Hollywood, the way they refer to assholes who are, uh, you know, the way you know a person's an asshole is they'll say, oh, uh, he's, he's really talented, though. 
that's their way of saying he's an asshole, but mm. they fucking have to work with him anyway. Mm. So, but it, I tell them, I say in documentary, it's like, especially if you want to do the kind of films I'm doing, you know, there may be certain kind of films you can do where right. you don't have to really build relationships with people where you can be an asshole. But if you want to do the kind of films along the lines of what I and others do in this vein, you can't be an asshole Where because people Moore don't want people that? don't want to be around you. Well, I think with Michael Moore, it's um, he he's very winning guy with the sort of people, the common folk, quote unquote, that that he's got in his films. You know, he has a you know he has a rapport with them. He's a funny guy. He uses his humor, and then with the people that he ambushes and he's attacking, he's not about being nice there, mm-hmm. right? So, and he's not going to spend time with them. That's a one and done deal. It's like Charlton Heston. It's one and done. He's not going to come back and spend. But if you want to be consistently coming back in the lives of someone, even if they've agreed to do this, if you're an asshole or not someone you enjoy. So humor, I think, becomes an important part of that. It's like bonding with people. So there's a part of his movies that feel sort of self-congratulatory or at least like it's always about Michael Moore, which I don't find in your films. Yeah. I never think, oh, look. There's Steve James. The, the the only time I can think of that is that one shot in life itself. Oh yeah, in the, in the mirror where where Roger told me to shoot the yeah. Well, I, I I've been in. I mean, I'm in life itself more as a narrator and emailer, but I'm not really in that film except for that shot so much. But I've been in two of my films, which I never thought I would ever be when I started out. Mm. Um, I I feel like um. I feel like my my job as a filmmaker is to help people in the audience. Um, they don't have to agree with everything they see someone do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I'm following people that you absolutely don't agree with what's being done. But I want you to understand why they've made those choices. That's to me is the most important role of a documentary filmmaker is to help the audience understand and if anything if anything for the most part virtually on virtually every one of my films is to resist judgment you you're resisting judgment i want the audience to i I, in other words not not just make decisions about right and wrong but but to judge people um because of decisions they made i'd rather you understand it at least first before you make any kind of judgment. But I, I think there's a tremendous responsibility in documentary film to your subjects that if it's fiction, you know, if it's Tony Soprano, have at it. Think whatever you want of him. But what right. makes Tony, what, what, what makes Tony Soprano a really interesting character is the fact that he resists easy judgment because yes, you judge him on his murderous <laughs> ways, but you also relate to him because of he is not the boss of his own family. <laughs> have you been part? Have you had a subject in a film that you're doing your best to reserve judgment of, but you don't really like? Oh yeah. No, and and again, I think it's my duty to present that person in a honest light. Mm. And if I don't like certain things about that person, then I think you're not going to like certain things. Right. But what I'm trying to do. What I'm very conscious of doing in both the shooting and especially in the editing is to try to um, counteract the easy uh, judgments that people will make. So in Stevie, um, I don't obviously expect you to condone 
a lot of his behavior and what he did and what he, and the way he even acts while we're filming. Mm. But I also don't want you to sit there and just take a, a kind of superior view of him and think, you know, and, and cast him aside as not worthy of your attention and empathy because he is definitely worthy of that. And is everyone worthy of that? Uh, I think, I think anybody that you follow in any degree, I'm not saying people who make cameos in your film because you're not, you know, but I think anybody you follow is worthy of being understood, not necessarily. Yeah. So if I was doing, but I wouldn't, if I was doing a film on Donald Trump, right. I would, first of all, you wouldn't do, I wouldn't do a film on Donald Trump because I don't like him at all from what I know of him. Hmm. And I really believe that, that when you do a film on anybody, you, on some level, you have to like this person to want to go do the film because otherwise what's the point? And first of all, it's painful. I don't, I, so, but if let's say I, there was something about Donald Trump I really liked. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I just is, wanted, is to, it, oh, I, it's his hair, isn't it? Well, it, yeah. 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 Is that, well, I want to look under the comb over, but uh, you want to see what's under there. <laughs> yeah, I want to see what's living under that's there. That's almost worth making the movie if you, if you that's could right. just pull that off. So, but so let's say I was going to do a film on him. Uh, um, I would want you to see him in all his glory of what it is that makes him Donald Trump. But I would also hope to try to dig beneath the surface to understand what has given rise to that guy. Right. Not just sit there and shoot fish in a barrel, which would be the easiest thing to do. Right. So, but I wouldn't do that film because I have no, I don't, I'm not interested in him enough to want to even do that. Mm. I just not. So, but I'm interested in the people that I've done films on enough to want to, to do that. Well, let's go through that quick. Okay. Um, what do you feel, feel like you learned about Alan Iverson? Well, what I, I feel like what I learned about Alan Iverson because I didn't get to actually interview him, but you, I, you made efforts. I made efforts. Yeah. But I didn't expect him to say yes because he didn't want to, he didn't want to deal with this. Um, was there, was there a response from his manager? Yeah. And they said, well, part of it was he, part of it was he was making his own film, which finally came out like last year, yeah. which I haven't seen. Um, I've heard is not great, but. Um, that was part of it. It's like, I'm not going to give to you what you, what he wants to do. Right. And plus, but I wasn't setting out to do a film on Alan Iverson per se. Mm. I was setting out to do a film on why did Alan Iverson and a bowling alley brawl in high school cleave the community of my hometown the way it did when, when they revered high school sports so much and even revered black athletes before him. Right. Why? this and why such a major rift that's what the film's about so i didn't need an interview with alan iverson if i got an interview with alan iverson it wasn't gonna be asking about the trial it was gonna be asking about how did he feel about his hometown before this happened how did he feel about it after it you know how did he i want to ask him that anyway are there is there a lot of probing and 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 positioning of good question and leading questions even when you're on set of your subjects what do you mean? Are you asking them to talk about a certain thing? Are you saying, let's Oh, talk. you mean like in a scene? Yeah. Uh, it depends. Sometimes I'm, I'm, um, sometimes I'm, yes. I mean, it's the dirty, maybe it's not the dirty little secret of documentary filmmaking, but, um, but like some elements of stage, staging. 
Yeah. Well, or some elements of setting the stage, if you will, so that something can happen that you want to see happen. And you're fine with that not being organic then? I'm fine with that um, as long as what transpires, at least by my definition of it, is true, Mm. is truthful and honest. Um, So you see an example of this actually in Stevie where I actually reveal the machinations. I don't know if have you seen that film? Long time ago. Okay. So there's a scene in that film where Stevie's sister and his mother and her mother are in the kitchen and I they have just they tell me they have recently just gotten over a rift between the two of them Mm -hmm. and I just push at it to say, Well, what was it about? What was it about? And I get and then I I cause it clearly has not been resolved and it erupts again. And at the end of the scene which I left in the film, which is typically you would not. <laughs> How do they feel the mom that? turns to me and says, why do you do this? You know, why do you, she's crying. She says, why do you do this? Which did is you, a good question. Did you feel bad? I did feel bad, but I also felt obligation to put it in the film because it's what we do. Was that your response to her? I didn't, I didn't say that. I don't think, I don't remember in the film what I say. And I don't, I, I think I, I, well, I think I say something in film. I, oh, I, th- I think I say something which is profoundly inadequate. Like, I, I, I was just trying to understand what was going on. Right. You know, which is true. Yeah, but, but it's, I not, also, it's not, that's not what she wanted, though. It, but it's also, I got what I wanted, which right. was for them to talk about it. Do you feel bad about, do you ever feel like you're being opportunistic? Oh, yeah. But. How do you reconcile with that? You, well, no one, no documentary filmmaker who's honest with themselves can and does the kind of films that I do when a lot of people do, you know what I mean? Um, can honestly reconcile the fact, and that's part of what Stevie's about. It's not at all what it's all about at all, but it is one of the themes of that film, which is can reconcile the fact that we are there to capture the sometimes tragic turns in people's lives and, and that what's bad for them is good for us. What's bad for them is good for us. Meaning as storytellers. Right. And but I... That's got to weigh on you, though. It does weigh on me. And so one of the things... I, I do feel like I, I've i had failures along the way, like the one I put in Stevie and others. Um, but I, I really do feel like that for the most part, I have really endeavored to conduct myself as a... Um, ethical human being in my relationships with the subjects and i have tried not to i like to come home at night and feel like um i i've acted honorably and i i don't always succeed at it but i think i i I think i see succeed at it to a pretty good degree because and here's the good thing about it which you could say is you know manipulative or something but i i don't is that I'm when not, is, I'm not saying anything? That's you. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, it's what, what, when I say this, it's like you could look at this a different way, which I, I recognize, which is you actually get, you actually, the more your subjects trust that you care about them, truly care about them, and that you're not just there to get a good story, mm-hmm. the better the story will be, too, because they will, they will give of themselves to you in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And I, and I really take that trust very seriously. And, yeah. and I want 
no matter how difficult a portrait is of someone, I want them by the end of this to feel like this was the right thing to do. I mean, I feel similarly in my own, especially with this, especially with this podcast, mm-hmm. which is generally our interviews. Right. And we're trusting each other a lot to say some of these things. And I don't take that lightly. I'm, and there are times where I am worried about it. I, yeah. am, I do wonder if I'm like using in a way that I don't want to. Right. Cause that's not my goal. It I'm feeling really, very used right now. Good. No, see, that was intended. <clears throat> Since this is in part that's with. That's not true. <laughs> no. No. I have the utmost, uh, care and empathy for you, Steve. Thank you. Um, since this is in part, this episode is in part done with RogerEber.com, it seems like we should yes go over. Uh, I've had a few different conversations about Roger on the show, um, but how are you feeling about him now? You're if, like a few years removed from the documentary. I remember when we watched that um, in 2013. 2014. No, uh, the film came out in 2014. It came out in 2014. January 2014. He passed away in 2013. 2013. Yes. April 2nd, I believe it was. And then um, we played the film at Ebert Fest. Yes. And um, that was probably the most emotional screening I've ever been part of. Mm. Yeah, that was some screening. Given given where we were. Yeah. And then the film itself. Yeah. Have you figured out what it is yet that makes us keep coming back to him? To Roger? Yeah. Uh, I think my answer changes year after year. Yeah. Well, I think that um, he was just uh, a profound, um, a profoundly human man who put all that out there. He put it out there in his reviews and in his best reviews. It, what his best reviews weren't about him, but you felt him and his love of whatever that review was about, or that movie was about, or that documentary was about. You felt it in that review, um, and and you know he, and then of course the way in which he dealt with his illness. Um, it never felt, um, it never felt like, oh look at me. It always felt like he was carving a path for other people in similar situations to face what he's facing bravely and honestly and hold your head high. Mm. It it always felt directed out, not, Oh, look at what a brave person I am. Right. You know, never felt that way. We all sat in the same place. The newspaper guys here, the druggies in the middle, the surly staff at the very end of the bar. Roger has, always been attracted to weird types. I mean, you should see some of the women that he's hauled into O'Rourke's over the years. You know. Back in the old days, Roger had probably the worst taste in women of any man I've ever known. They were either gold diggers, opportunists, or psychos. Yeah, I met Roger one time with a woman that looked like a young Linda Ronstadt. And when she was gone from the table briefly, I said, who is that? And he said, uh, she's a hired lady. And I said, a hooker? <laughs> and he said, now you take care of her when I leave. <laughs> Do you think people 
can watch your films and feel like they have some fraction of an understanding of who you are and what you believe? I think so. I hope so. I mean, I feel like my films all have a point of view, but I, I like to think that that point of view is not simple and not easily arrived at. Mm. <laughs> um, so I want, I want, um, but, but I also feel like at heart, my films are about giving voice to other people. Um, unusually people, not like Roger, who are not famous, who, who are often on the margins of society, not who don't have a voice, as they say. Thank you for, um, this is going to sound ridiculously cliched and cheesy, but you, the way you do give voices to people that don't have a platform, um, I'm not even going to say it's inspiring because that sounds too generic, <laughs> but I know whatever it is I'm watching feels vital, hmm. feels alive. It feels necessary. Wow. That's, that's really sweet of you to say. I appreciate that. So, uh, and thank you for doing the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, there it is. A lot of people to thank for this episode. First off, Susan Norgit and Keaton Kale for helping arrange this conversation during TIFF Madness. I know it is never easy to do that, especially for an hour interview. This episode is, in part, conjunction with the good people at Cartemquin, who for the past 50 years have tackled the most pressing issues examining social power structures through intimate stories of ordinary people. UCLA is celebrating this special anniversary with screenings from the Cartemquin catalog from now until the 26th of September. If you want to go to one of those, we'll include more info and a link in the show notes. We'd also like to thank Brian Tellerico and Chaz Ebert at RogerEbert.com for helping put out this episode of the podcast. And, you know, for everything else you both have done over the years. You can watch some of Steve's films currently streaming on Netflix, including Hoop Dreams, Life Itself, and 30 for 30, No Crossover, The Trial of Allen Iverson. Lastly, a big thanks to Steve James for coming on episode 25 of the podcast. People. If you've enjoyed what you heard today or any other day listening to the show, do consider giving the podcast a quick review on iTunes. We really appreciate those who've taken the time to write a few words, including the shy and addicts who said, this podcast is down to clown. I think I know who that is, actually. Or Kay Mench, who wrote... The podcast resides in the gray area between interview and therapy session. The gray area, yes, that's what we want. Then there's also this informal review my mom gave me before doing the intro, which was something like, yeah, it's, it's, it's good, it's okay. So if you can swing a couple minutes this week, please help new listeners find the show by writing a couple kind words. If you're not doing so already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. The emails we have received have been really wonderful to read and um, respond to. So thank you for sending in kind words and encouragement. Also, do follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. We have a whole bunch of exciting news to share within the coming weeks, and we'll be doing that there and at talkeasypod.com. As always, our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. 
illustrations by Krishna, social media by Maria Mayela. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The Medal of Honor podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. It's a special thing to be a member of Navy Federal because they're a member-owned, not-for-profit credit union that invests in their members with amazing rates and low fees. That's why members earn and save more every year. If you are active duty, a veteran, or have a family member who is a veteran or service member, you're eligible for membership. Become a Navy Federal member today. Navy Federal Credit Union. Members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.